so, uh, so uh, beginning something new today, uh, if, if we just got done with the holiday season, and if, if uh, you know, a big question that we often ask, ask each other is, you know, how were, how were the holidays? You know, if you say, uh, yeah, I mean, it was just a pretty normal, a pretty normal Christmas for our family, or, or we had family over, it was just a normal gathering, you know, um, what might that look like for you? Just think about it in your head. Because if we say something's normal for us, the chances are if we ask that other person and they say, yeah, we had a pretty normal gathering too. Like one might involve, you know, like Uncle Hank, like chucking a beer bottle across the room against a wall, right? And then others might be that, you know, we had a meal together and then like we played like forced family fun group games for the rest of the afternoon. And then others, like, we just, I just had a TV dinner on my own. That's a normal family holiday because we don't do family very much. Like, whatever the case is, the idea that, that you know, it was just a typical day. If someone says, um, how was, you know, what was, your, what was your church service? What's your church like? Oh, we're just a normal church. You know, we're just like a normal church. Well, if that person grew up Greek Orthodox and you came out of here, right, then that person's going to get a super different idea of what they think a normal church service is than what we do. Uh, I, I um, studied in Zambia a couple times um, when I was in my 20s and uh, love, love some of my Zambian brothers and sisters that I spent time out there um, with at the Theolog- Theological College of Central Africa. And uh, one of the pr- uh, professors there, they train Zambian pastors um, to lead their own churches locally. And one of the professors was talking about how he had, um, he had helped, the, the school had helped fund a conference in Botswana you know, which is not, not that far away from that uh, part of Zambia. And so they sent these two young pastors to go and get trained for four days. It was one of those all-expenses things. And they came back, and they said, so, and, and the, the professor said, how was your time? And they said, oh, it was great. We learned a lot. It was really good. But they didn't give us any food. And the pastor was like, or the professor was like, they didn't give you any food. Like, he didn't send them with money. And he said, you didn't eat anything the entire time? And they said, no, we ate. They just didn't have any food. And what we found out that they meant was um, in Zambia, the staple food is called nshima. And it's a ground white cornmeal. And it is eaten in every single meal. And they didn't serve nshima at the conference. And so the Zambian pastor said, we didn't have any food. <laughs> you know, like they ate throughout the time. But, but food was so standard. So, so like, you know, it, what was so typical to a Zambian family is slightly different in Botswana. Um, even though they're, they're uh, close neighbors. The, the idea that we have all of our norms, that we assume our norms for everybody else, is a really, really problematic part of our realities. And it gets in the way of so many relationships, it gets in the way of learning, uh, and it gets in the way of doing, doing the work of Jesus and being the people of Jesus. Um, and, might I add, the most important and significant moments of growth in our lives often occur when our norms are challenged, when we encounter a norm that's not ours, when we're forced to. Sometimes you have a normal life and then crisis or tragedy hits in some way. And on the flip side, you realize that this is not, there's, there's whatever you've gotten used to as normal is not anymore. And there's, this is often where, whether we want it or not, where opportunity happens for significant growth. Um, there's this story in John 4. Jesus is uh, working his way um, He's on a journey, and he hits the, the um, area where the Samaritans live, and he stops for water in John 4, uh, it's, and, and has this conversation with this woman, and it's often called the woman at the well. 
Um, anyways, he has this long conversation with her. He's the polar opposite in every norm than she is. He's a, a, a male rabbi teacher, Jewish. She's a Samaritan woman. Um, lots of power, but also a completely different cultural context. Samaritans were viewed very, very differently because they were half Jewish and half Gentile, which meant that they were dirty, according to the Jewish people. That's not actually the point. They have this great conversation that we're not talking about at all. And then, <laughs> because that's not actually the passage for today. And, uh, but in the midst of this, okay, in the midst of this, Jesus, Jesus begins to talk to her, and he starts to um, help her understand. This is the living water. If you knew who, he, he asks her to draw water, and they have this conversation about water, and then he starts talking about how he can offer living water. And she says, that sounds great. It's really tiring to come out here to this well all the time, because living water meant a babbling brook, like a spring. I'm not supposed to talk about this. It's getting into the passage. All right. Long story short, eventually, she sees he's a prophet. She sees that he can see into her life. He makes, he makes mention of what we assume is a pattern of unhealthy relationships for her. And her response to this is, wow, I see you're a prophet. Now, we don't know if she's now got a really interesting question or if she's just changing the subject. But regardless, she says, so we say that we worship on, if, if you're a prophet of God, we say that we worship on this mountain. You Jews say that we have to be in Jerusalem at the temple. What is it? And his response is up here on the screen. And he says, he says to her, he says, listen, a time's coming, all right, when you won't worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. <laughs> you, you're looking at your norm and our norm. The time's coming where, where that's not going to be the point, all right? You, wor- you worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. He says, he says we have a grasp of this, this story, but here's where the story's culminating. A time is coming and has now come. I love that because Jesus is with them, so it's here now. A time is coming and has now come. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they, will, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Spirit and in truth, meaning that instead of the form and function being the same thing, where you've got to do it in this way, this is the typology, this is the norm, instead the heart and the character behind what's being done is what is, what is ultimately going to be seen as beautiful and honoring to God. So, so the character behind our actions might mean that actions get expressed in lots of different ways. Lots of different cultural expressions, lots of different worship expressions, lots of different prayer expressions. And this is going to be beautiful. This is going to be good. Um, so, so it's a vision, right? To, that, that seekers of truth and those who are in touch with the Spirit, that's going to be what this is all about. Um, and it's a hopeful vision of the future. It's bold and it's really beautiful. And so that has inspired us as a church uh, who wants to be intentional about valuing all the many ways that we can experience God and all the many ways that we can live out God's love to explore various traditions. All right, so for a few weeks, uh, we're going to encourage you to explore some things beyond your normal that may help you uh, connect with God in worship and prayer that may stretch you. Um, traditions that might be fresh and different even though they're really old, many of them. Um, but... Week one and two are going to be so different from each other. Let me just tell you that. Um, because before we get to exploration of, of new norms that help us connect with God in spirit and in truth, uh, it felt important to, uh, to start, before we talk about meaningful worship, especially on a weekend like this, to explore the foundation that we see in the scriptures that over and over again must be in place before meaningful connection with God can blossom. And so this week we're going to talk and begin with traditions of justice. All right? So tomorrow is uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And, and Dr. King was a transformative voice 
in our country for racial justice and equality. Uh, in his most famous speech, he spoke uh, of his vision that, that people would be able to be treated and with absolute equity and equality and express themselves in freedom and fullness. Um, that everyone would have dignity, that everyone would have opportunity of a future together, and that justice would truly reign. Now, uh, I want to press pause for just a minute uh, because there's, I, I want to address a personal giant elephant in the room, and that is the conversation that happens about Dr. Martin Luther King from white male pastors. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. and his legacy is often brought up in primarily white churches when it serves their purposes really well. And at the same time when certain inspiring quotes can be shared and the uncomfortable history of white Christian opposition to him is ignored. Um, so we need to take a moment here to just lament. <laughs> and, I, and, and I'm going to lead the way in that. Um, we, we need to acknowledge that co-opting a big part of somebody's message while ignoring the fact that churches like ours in many ways that are um, primarily uh, white culture-influenced churches um, were not actually helpful in the cause of justice during one of the most significant times of transformation in, in U.S. history. <clears throat> and so, we, uh, as inspiring as Dr. King's words are, <clears throat> the most prophetic words maybe to a church like ours might come from his, uh, his letter uh, or a statement in his letter uh, from a Birmingham jail. And so I'm, I'm just going to read one of these uh, statements. The, the entire letter is profoundly important for us to be aware of. I must confess over the past few years that I've been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than justice, who prefers a negative peace which is the absence of tension to a positive peace which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set a timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. Uh, as a white male pastor in a position of power, uh, I feel the need to make sure that we walk with absolute humility and confession here. Uh, because to be honest, it's much easier for me to value justice in my own timeline and my own convenience. Um, yet I've been impacted by Dr. King's message, and to be honest, by his sermons far more than that. We often think of, of Dr. King as a great orator, um, not someone who uh, was a dynamic, dynamic preacher um, of the way of Jesus in the New Testament um, for his life. But, uh, but I want, I, I, I've been impacted by the nonviolent character of Jesus that was portrayed over and over in the midst of truly working boldly and courageously for justice. I encourage you to read his, his sermons, not just his speeches. Um, but Dr. King's legacy, uh, it highlights how the, oh, and 
yeah, you can, we can go ahead. I actually forgot the iPad, so I'm going to just rely on you. Um, and and <laughs> pulling a quote was like the most ridiculous thing to try to work through to embody some of the ways that I've been impacted um, by, by Dr. King. But one of the, the statements he made um, during um, an interview was that any religion that professes to be concerned about the souls of men and is not concerned about the slums that damn them, the economic conditions that strangle them, and the social conditions that cripple them is a spiritually moribund religion awaiting burial. The idea that um, we can separate these two things, the soul and the body, um, is not what we see in Jesus and is not one of the things that uh, Dr. King uh, spoke toward. Um, his, his legacy highlights how the historic black church has held a vision of justice that's often overlooked in many of our traditions. Yet his prophetic voice was not actually the first one to call justice to the forefront and to speak truth to power. He was in a succession of a long line of voices stemming from the scriptures themselves. So we're going to just take a look just briefly at, at the legacy of the prophets in the Old Testament and what we see um, and why it's important that, that we're aware of this. And many of these passages you've probably heard before. So uh, Micah 6.8 um, is one of the ones, Micah, we're going to look at Micah, Isaiah, and Amos just briefly for uh, one minute each. Um, Micah, uh, in, in his prophetic role, and the prophets, by the way, were always people of Israel sent to their own people. It's really important. In, in uh, Old Testament times, when, you're, when your group of people would have prophets, they're like the prophets of Baal and others, their job was to call down curses on neighboring nations. So all of a sudden, Israel's prophets start to come up, and they're supposed to be on the borderlands shouting out. And what they do is they turn around, and they say, hey, we've lost the plot, gang. And so this is why it's really important for us to be aware of the prophetic voices, because it's always introspective. It's always saying, well, look at what you're missing, Get your heart right, get your actions right, and then you'll be able to walk well and at peace with God. So, Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. Now, I want you to notice that act justly and love mercy, seeking justice, which is really just love distributed, okay? Justice is love distributed, and, and, to, and to love mercy, to be merciful and kind, and then to walk humbly with God. You see how the first two things... <laughs> Like, you can't walk humbly with God if you're mistreating other people. And so you see that there is a, an order here, right, that kind of is maybe uh, in the tradition that, that Dr. King was speaking of. <clears throat> so we see this. We also see this in Isaiah 1. Um, Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans and fight for the rights of widows. So for the people of Israel, they're calling as people of God to embody being people of God meant to do these things. This is what the prophets called them back to. The two main themes are worship with integrity, so not worshiping idols, and acting with justice to those who are poor and on the margins of society. So over and over again. Now Amos was um, of the same breed, but Amos was a, a real firecracker, okay? So Amos comes in, and he's actually from from, um, it was when the kingdoms were divided. He was from one kingdom, but he was called to the other. So he was like, um, Let's see, how do we say this? He would have been from the same country, but from a different cultural representation of it, speaking truth to power. All right? So we can see some possible parallels here. So Amos comes in, and Amos in chapter 5 just kind of lets loose. And I think it's really interesting that we see that one of the first things is lament. Amos says, I'm going to lament. I'm going to acknowledge the losses right now in the lack of love for, for your people, folks. And then he begins to speak hard truths. There's those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. 
those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth, those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Now, this really challenges our understanding if your entire life you only believe that the biblical call toward compassion and justice is all personal and not societal. Because over and over we see that there are systems that Amos is addressing here. There are systems that are actually being spoken about. There's court injustices and there's indifferences and mistreatment to the poor. So in the midst of this, um, you see there's specific frustrations. Um, and and, and I, I think it, what's really important, especially as we reflect just a bit on, on the legacy of Martin Luther King as it uh, relates to justice, many have compared Dr. King's voice to Amos um, over the years. And, uh, and one of the things that, that, is, that resonates there is that the broad statements were always rooted in specific issues where harm was being done. And Dr. King always pointed to that. It was not just big, broad statements. It was always rooted in, in actions and real opportunities where there was harm done that could be transformed. Um, and, and the final uh, Amos statement in chapter 5 was a favorite of his. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, here we go, we're back to worship again. I'll have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I won't listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. I love the imagery of justice-like like flowing water. Because if you think about a waterfall or if you think about a stream, everything that's in, in the path gets touched. Water can't work its way around stuff. If there's a rock there, the water's going to hit it. It's going to touch it. It's going to touch everything. There's nothing too big or too small that doesn't get impacted. So when we think about a world where God calls us to make sure that everyone is being treated with the kind of love, dignity, and, and equity that, that they deserve and that wrongs are righted, and that we are learning about who is suffering and why, then, then it, uh, it's not just personal, and it's not just societal. It's both. And, and so this is the, the beauty of, of justice that moves like a stream, and the breadth of God's justice that we're invited to. Um, in light of that, I want us to consider a few new norms. The other day, uh, we were home over, over the holidays, and I think we were watching football or something like that, I'm sitting beside my son, Kylan, and everyone's in the room. And Kylan leaves and he comes back. Um, he's sitting beside me on the couch. And then I, I must have been looking at my phone or something. I look up and everyone's gone, except for Kylan. He's just sitting there on the couch doing his thing. And, uh, and I said, what's up? Like, where'd everyone go? And he looks up at me and he goes, I'm an influencer. And he had a peppermint stick in his hand. You know those peppermint sticks? Like, like the red and white cheap things that you get at the dollar store and pack a tent or something like that. He's got a peppermint stick that he's, like, sucking on. And apparently, he went and got one, sat down on the couch. Everybody around saw, oh, Kylan's got candy. And they went out and got it. And he's like, I am an influencer. And I've just been thinking about that great little statement and about how we all really are. We're all influencers in different ways, um, and we have opportunities to influence constantly. The words that I say to the person who, who is um, my checkout clerk at the grocery store is an opportunity for me to be an influencer. Simple moments of dignity and kindness. How I treat my family members. Opportunity to be an influencer. What, what I do when I talk about other people. Um, opportunity to be an influencer. What I give my time and energy to in the world. Opportunity to be an influencer. Um, whether you have a peppermint stick or not. So, so I, I think it's important that we, that we remember that throughout the scriptures, people of God are not just called to love God, but to be influencers in the way of love. So this might challenge you, because we're going to look at just give you an opportunity to embrace maybe some traditions that you're not used to in the traditions of justice. So um, 
so the first one, we'll, we'll, we'll start easy. Uh, the first one is, uh, it's already been referenced multiple times today. So the first tradition of justice is prayer. And yes, there's alliteration coming. Um, they all start with P's. So the first, the first thing is prayer. And when I say prayer, what I, what I mean, okay, is lament is one. One way that we learn to practice justice is to hurt with our brothers and sisters and siblings who hurt, okay? And so, so we learn to, to see the connectedness and to lament where we've lost our way, to lament that there is brokenness in the world that God longs to see healed, okay? But the second thing is actually to begin to pray toward a difference, to pray toward a change, because prayer changes the prayer. It's the way it works, right? When we begin to pray for something, that's why Jesus told us to pray for our enemies, because the moment we begin to pray for our enemies, we humanize them, and we begin to feel differently about them, all right? And so, so there's this, this concept of, of prayer as, a, as an open door to practice justice by becoming aware and letting, letting God soften our own hearts through lament and through intercession for the sake of other people. Um, to go back to, uh, to Dr. King, he once said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing, um, and and I, I love the idea that we don't just say, hey, it's out there. The work of love is out there. And then we don't consider what needs to happen within us and maybe uh, what, what it means to truly be people of faith. So um, prayer is the first thing. Now the second thing, here we go. This might start to get us uncomfortable, at least me. I'm going to be honest. It gets me uncomfortable. Second is protest. Now when I say protest, I don't just mean doing a march. What I mean by protest is that one of the traditions of justice is with the heart of Jesus, we bring voice and attention to areas that are lacking shalom. Shalom is the, the, the scripture's word about wholeness, God's heart, that everything would be made right. Is there shalom? So you would walk down the street as a Jewish person and you'd say, uh, in English, what you would say is, hi, is there shalom for you? Like, how, how are you doing? The, the phrase was, is there shalom? Is there shalom in your family? Are things as they should be? That, that meant, how's your health? How's your work? Whatever. Is there shalom? And you would respond saying, yes, there's shalom. I'm well, I'm whole right now. Or no, I don't have enough. I'm missing food. I'm missing money. Whatever the case might be. Um, and, and it would be a, a means of awareness. When there is not shalom in our world, our job is to help make sure that attention is called to it. Um, to not overlook it. And so, so we bring voice to um, areas. We don't quietly participate in oppressive systems as much as it can depend on us. This is what the prophets did. The prophets, they, they, in all of their unique ways, and it took many different forms, Jeremiah folded up his shorts and shoved them in a wall. I don't think he had an extra pair, so like that is really like on the edge. It's our great skit about, about Jeremiah's short story. Um, but, uh, you know, so, so, uh, you know, these things were done to give voice and image, but, but we might have our own ways of doing it, and it can be diverse. It can look very different, but we bring attention to areas that need attention brought to them. The third one, um, also, by the way, fully, uh, disclosing here, totally outside of my comfort zone. The next one's policy, and when I say policy, Again, these are traditions within the Christian church of how to pursue justice. When I say policy, um, I'm, I'm suggesting that we use what power we have in our country to make sure 
that people are protected from harm in any way possible. All right? Um, particularly by paying attention to those on the margins who have historically had the least amount of voice and power. Again, to go back to the example of, of the legacy of Dr. King, the, when he was in Memphis, and I only learned this this week, thank you, Rob, um, but when, we, when he was in Memphis, um, it was the second trip in two trips when, when he was assassinated. The reason he was in Memphis was not just to give a big, inspiring speech. He was in Memphis because sanitary workers in Memphis were being treated differently if they were black than if they were white. So they were being paid $1.70 per hour, but if there was inclement weather and everyone was sent home, the black workers would not get paid, but the white workers would continue to receive their paycheck. And so he came there to change policy so that it was equitable. Now, if you come from a, 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 a theological background like mine, that sounds political. And by saying it sounds political, that means that it's untouchable. That's, that's a different world than spiritual. Now, I am the first to say that I hold what's called a two-kingdom theology, and a two-kingdom theology comes from my Anabaptist background, and a two-kingdom theology says that my primary allegiance is to God's kingdom, and I, I, I live as an American as a secondary citizen, not as a primary citizen. And so, therefore, whenever my allegiances are challenged, my allegiance stays with God's kingdom. But within that reality, sometimes that has been used to say, then I just totally stay out of any opportunity. And if I had taken that attitude during the civil rights movement, <laughs> then I would have been square in the middle of Dr. King's prophetic statement there. And so, so I think what we maybe need to, to make sure that as Jesus people that we guard against is talking about protest and policy and letting it become defined by being partisan. That's different than understanding that there's opportunities for political expression in ways that do good. And yes, this is super complicated. Can we just like name how messy all of this is? Because people are going to interpret what harm is differently. What issues need attention. And to be honest, I am not going to stand here and just lay all of that out. Partly because this is mostly a one-way conversation. Not because it's untalkable, not because it's untouchable to talk about, but because I've got too much power here. And if I don't say your thing, then that's what your mind's going to be on for the rest of the time. Again, insight from my wife, because I had a list. She's like, <laughs> stupid idea, Keith. <sighs> oh, man. Sanctification through spouses. Um, yeah. But the movement toward um, maybe, maybe what this is, it's just about learning how different laws might affect people that aren't in your social location, right? Because I'll be honest, presidents have come and gone, and my life really has not been impacted much. But others have been. I know them. I've walked the borderlands and gone back and forth between Mexico and the United States four times in a week to learn about what happens down there. Like, I've had opportunities to see how different people are impacted by, very, by laws that we might just read about one day and then swipe right after Apple News' notification goes off. And so, so it's worth our time as people of, of Jesus to reflect and say, how are things impacting? And, and what, what might my role be? We, we don't all of a sudden default all of our influence to a vote a couple times a year or a couple times a, 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 a whatever it is, block. Yeah. 
I'm really excited about this coming year. Um, because it just brings up all of this stuff that often actually moves us away from a heart toward Jesus. So we have to learn how to hold these things together. Um, public action, personal expression. Which actually, um, yeah, um, I think we've got to be really careful of avoiding tribalism through here. But the final thing, back to where I'm very comfortable. Um, however, um, I think it's really important that we don't ignore this. Um, and the final thing is uh, personal. Personal compassion, uh, personal care. That, that's the face-to-face stuff, okay? So, so um, traditions of justice, they look like prayer, lament, intercession. They look like um, bringing attention to areas where people are being mistreated. They look like exploring what systems are in place that actually can be changed through, through healthy law and policy. And it looks th- like looking at the person in front of you and saying, how might I express the compassion of Jesus? And, and Jesus himself speaks of this. So in Matthew 25, Jesus is, is speaking with, um, it's, it's a vision. He's, giving a, he's, he's telling a story. And he, and he talks about um, these two groups of people. One, peop- one group of people think that they are super high and holy. You can kind of hear it reflected in, um, in Amos' words, right? They're like, we've got this worship thing down. We love God. We, like, we are the best dancers in worship ever. Just move around and like I'm all surrendered. By the way, that's a totally valid posture. I just realized that it sounds like I'm saying that if you do that, that's not uh, valid. But like, I go to church every single week, right? I do all of it. And Jesus says, but like you had all these opportunities to love people and you didn't. And I told you to. So how come you think that the one thing's holy and the other thing's irrelevant? And then there are these other people that didn't really know. And Jesus says, hey, every single time, you know, when I was, in, when I was sick, you, you cared for me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was, when I was naked, you, you helped provide clothing. And they say, I, like, I think you might have got the wrong person. Like, we don't remember doing this as some big high holy activity. And Jesus' response is, oh, actually, every single time you saw somebody in need and did that, I was right there in the midst of it. And so, so this is this profound statement of Jesus saying, you can't ignore people. And I love that James, can we just, yeah, skip Matthew 25 because I just talked through it. Yeah, I love that James in chapter 2, James is the brother of Jesus, took him a while to catch up and actually get on board. For a while he thought Jesus was a lunatic. But eventually he becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And when he does, he writes this letter to all of the churches around. And, and he really, really hits um, areas of justice and compassion and mercy. But I love this. He says in a bit of a biting uh, um, prophetic statement, You've dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? So, so he's saying, you've got systems right now that are really inequitable. And then only a few verses later, he says, but suppose brother or sister comes without clothes and food if one of you says, hey, be well. I just want you to know that last year I voted for a policy that's going to help you. We've got to be bigger than that. The gospel's bigger than all of it. It includes systems. It includes personal moments. And so when we learn to embrace the fact that this is all so central to God's heart, then we start to see our faith grow and explode in new ways. Um, I love it. So, um, yeah, and proximity matters, by the way, in all of this. Let me just say one more thing before we uh, have just a couple minutes for dialogue. Um, If I tell you that... uh, this weekend, I found out that my Verizon, they jacked up my Verizon bill by 40 bucks a month. <sighs> so annoying. 
And what are you going to do? You're going to agree with me and say, that's, that's, that, that sucks. That's annoying. But what am I going to do? I'm going to call Verizon, right? Because it's my life. You're going to be compassionate and be like, oh, that's a bummer. You're probably not going to call Verizon until you know that this is affecting you. So until we move as a people into a situation where we understand that our humanity is so deeply connected because we are all God's children and, my, and, and your justice and ability to be free is tied up in my ability to live freely, then, then we're not going to get there. Like, all of our bills have gone up from Verizon. Anti-Verizon message. Um, but, but until we start to see that this is personal to all of us, when brothers and sisters are mistreated, when they're overlooked, when policies adversely affect the poor or people of color, then when, when, we, when we start to, to realize that this is, this is not just an us and them thing, not as disciples of Jesus, I would say not as humans, but certainly not as disciples of Jesus, where Jesus teaches us that our, our shalom and our humanity is all wrapped up in each other, then once, once we have proximity and actually understand how things are, are being used toward harm and what we can do, then we start to become more involved. And that might look very personal. And it might look like you decide to learn about how things are affecting people. And it might look, look like you spend more time on your knees crying out to God and softening your own heart because it's been easy to ignore on your own timeline. I don't know what that looks like. That's the point. <laughs> the point is I don't know what it looks like. And being prescriptive in traditions of justice is not often helpful. Um, but there's beauty. So I want to I wanna just encourage you then not to fall into the dualistic thinking um, that it's only real justice if it addresses the big system or that it's only valid if it's a single face-to-face -face interaction. Both of those things are falsehoods. When justice flows like a river, it touches every rock, every crack, every part of our lives. So what areas might Jesus be inviting you to stretch towards or to learn more about? Let's put the Q&A up there. Um, Maybe you've relegated your tradition of justice to something that you do that looks political once every four years. Or maybe you're most comfortable helping out a friend, but you've never taken time to explore bigger issues and hear from people who have studied this stuff and understand that not all laws are fair. Um, or maybe one realistic takeaway, to be really honest, is just valuing the expressions of traditions of mercy and justice that are different from yours instead of deciding that that's unchristian. Granted, the heart has to play a huge role here, but understanding that people express their faith beautifully and meaningfully in different ways over the course of history, specifically as it relates to working for justice. Um,